find it pretty astonishing that some Bible teachers refuse to preach the Old Testament. They say that since we're a new covenant people, the New Testament should be the steady diet of the church. But, but Ruth chapter 1 was such a rich feast for us last week. Um, and we would also do well to remember that the Old Testament is our Christian scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The book of Ruth has been breathed out by God for us. And through this story, we come to know who God is and, and what God is like. We also learn about our Savior. Again, there's a special reason the book of Ruth begins in the days of the judges, when there was no king in Israel. And it ends with God's faithfulness to David. Our Savior is born the son of David. God's commitment to Naomi and Ruth grows out of his commitment to the son of David. Jesus Christ. So hang on to that thought because we'll eventually return to it. That's where the whole book is heading. The point being here that if you belong to Jesus, you have a long history that shapes who you are and how God chose to redeem you. Part of knowing Christ grows out of this second chapter of Ruth. So let's pick it up where we left off last Sunday, get everybody on the same page. Chapter 1 followed one Israelite family who sojourned in the country of Moab during a dark and empty time. There was a famine in the land and there was a famine in people's hearts. Naomi's experience is a bitter one. Her, Her husband and sons die and she's left with no home. No name, no inheritance, and seemingly no future hope. But all the while, the Lord was sovereignly orchestrating everything in Naomi's life, not only to save her, but also to save a Moabite named Ruth, and also work his plan to save us. The Lord provides bread in Bethlehem. He works repentance in Naomi's life. He saves Ruth, and then he uses Ruth to extend his kindness to Naomi. Chapter 1 began with emptiness, but it ends with fullness. But not everyone is experiencing the fullness. Naomi is still bitter. God's kindnesses are truly there for her, but Naomi misses them in her grief. She's so focused on what the Lord has taken that she cannot see all that he has given The Lord has been working everything for Naomi's good, but she interpreted everything as the Lord working against her. She thinks that her future is only going to be a bitter one. Call me Mara. Bitter. Chapter 2 is when the sun begins to rise on Naomi's darkness. The story continues in chapter 2, verse 1, where the narrator, the one telling the story, introduces us to a very significant individual named Boaz. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's 
a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We're actually going to meet Boaz in verse 3. We'll learn his name again. We'll also be told that he's from the clan of Elimelech again. What's the point of telling us these things about Boaz that we're going to eventually find out anyway once we meet him in the story? This happens a lot in biblical narrative. The storyteller knows what's going to happen before it happens. He even knows the mind of God. How God is viewing the situation and how we should understand the events from God's perspective. Of course, the ultimate storyteller here is the Holy Spirit. We're getting his side notes, so to speak. He's giving us a heads up. Hey, you really need to pay attention to this guy. For one, Boaz is a relative of Naomi's husband. More than an acquaintance, a relative. Maybe he can help. Two, he's from the clan of Elimelech. That's even more important, especially since Elimelech is now dead. Could he be the next in line to take responsibility for Elimelech's inheritance? And even better, Boaz is a worthy man. All that to say, the Holy Spirit just put a huge flashing arrow above Boaz's head. When Boaz enters the story, he's got everybody sitting on the edge of their seats, watching this man's every move. He's a worthy man in the line of Judah. Hmm. Might he be able to rescue Ruth and Naomi? Might he be pointing to another worthy man in the line of Judah who is able to rescue us? Let's keep reading to find out. Verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. After him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who is of the clan of Elimelech. Who would have thought that she just happened to come to the part of the field Belonging to Boaz, after he told us about Boaz. Literally, it says, and her chance chanced upon Boaz's part of the field. Our English equivalent would be, and as luck would have it. Anybody who knows the sovereign God of the Bible, at this point in Scripture, wants to stand up and and say, Oh, yeah, just happened. She just happened to come into his field. I mean, come on, we know God did that. It's not just coincidence. Precisely, that's the point. The narrator is seeing if you're awake as a reader of Scripture. Are you hearing this family story merely from the limited human perspective that can't always see God's hand at work? Or are you hearing this family story from, from God's perspective. Do you see God bringing this widow all the way from the land of Moab into the field of a worthy man in the line of Judah? One of the lovely takeaways from the book of Ruth is that it forces us to come to grips with our own family stories and then it pulls them up into the narrative of God's greater story. 
at the human level, we can't always see what the Lord is doing. We can't always see how God is going to use this or that suffering, this or that displacement, this or that leader, this or that job termination, this or that success. There might be a large number of it-just-so-happened-nats in our lives. But the book of Ruth teaches us that there's another perspective we must not forget, and that is God's perspective in Scripture. Nothing happens outside God's providential care and movement towards finishing his purpose for us in Christ, even down to the mundane affairs of finding a field to get some food on the table, even down to the mundane affairs of caring for someone in need, answering that phone call you'd prefer to ignore. The story goes on in verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. The character of Ruth and Boaz really stands out in this section. Last week we saw that Ruth exemplified the Lord's kindness his chesed, his committed love. Ruth remains steadfast in love when Naomi 
cannot even give her anything back. In chapter 2, this same kindness, the same committed love stands out in Boaz. So what I want to do is make two passes through verses 2 to 16 and point out how the Lord's kindness continues to manifest itself in Ruth and then in Boaz and show you why it's so significant. So let's begin with the humble and hope-filled initiative of Ruth. The humble and hope-filled initiative of Ruth. First we see that Ruth is proactive in her care for Naomi. Israel didn't have a welfare program, but the Mosaic Covenant did make provisions for the poor and the widow. Uh, The law reflected God's character. God saved Israel when they were helpless slaves in Egypt, and so we shouldn't be surprised to find laws in Israel that reflected God's character for helping the helpless. And specifically, uh, Deuteronomy 24.19 says that uh, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field... And you, uh, you shall not go back to get it. It says, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So don't go back and pick up your scraps. Leave them. Leviticus 19 also says that when you reap uh, your, the harvest of your land, you were not supposed to reap the field right up to the, to the edge. You were actually supposed to step back a little, leave, leave some of your grain, your wheat, whatever, uh, Neither shall you gather the gleanings, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. So the poor needs to eat, they can get up and go take some, some of your crop and provide for their family. This is what we find Ruth pursuing. Ruth is a widow, just like Naomi. Her state is even worse since she's a foreigner. But Ruth presses onward for the family. She goes above and beyond duty to care for Naomi while Naomi seems paralyzed by grief. Ruth is also a very hopeful woman. Notice her words in verse 2. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. The Hebrew word behind favor, favor is sometimes translated grace. She's hopeful that some landowner might show her grace from the Lord. She she doesn't know about Boaz yet. She's just banking on grace to provide for her in the time of need. Ruth is also a hard-working woman. Look at uh, verse 7. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Verse 17 shows that she worked all the way through the evening... In verse 18, she's going to carry home an ephah of of barley, which is like carrying a 50-pound sack of seed uh, home to the family. So Ruth is a tough woman. Ruth is also a humble woman. She's a humble woman. There's a tendency in my generation and, and younger to feel entitled to just about anything. You know, people think they deserve a trophy even if they don't win this kind of generation. People think they deserve the higher paying job without hard work. People get peeved when someone doesn't respond to a text in five minutes. But Ruth knows that she's not entitled to anything. Her attitude is one of humility. 
She asked permission to, to, she asked permission to pick up leftovers in the field in verse 7. Also notice her response to Boaz's grace in verse 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor or grace in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? You know, she knows who she is. She knows she's a Moabite who shouldn't be with God's people at all. She deserves separation and nothing from God's hand but wrath. And yet, even with the provision of food, she, she falls on her face in thanksgiving. Humility comes from knowing that you're unworthy to receive grace. Humility comes from knowing that you're unworthy to receive grace. When was the last time you fell on your face before God for anything? Shouldn't this be the way we respond to the grace of God in our lives? Why, Lord, have you taken notice of me since I am a stranger to your covenants? Since I deserve nothing but your wrath? What excellent qualities we find in Ruth. You know, there's a reason that the book of Ruth immediately follows Proverbs in the Hebrew Bible. Ruth is a spitting image of the Proverbs 31 woman. She is the illustration. But we need to ask one further question here. Where are these qualities coming from? What are they rooted in? We find our answer in the words of Boaz in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Get this. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is a most beautiful metaphor describing God. It comes from the Exodus uh, when God bore Israel up on on eagle's wings and brought them out of Egypt. The metaphor includes the Lord's protective care of his precious ones, like an eagle protecting her chicks. You find this in Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 36, Psalm 57, verse 1, be, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. So it's this mother keeping care of her young till the storms of destruction pass by. Ruth's hope filled initiative and hard-working humility. It's all growing out of Ruth making the Lord her refuge, her safe place. When you truly see how the Lord takes the initiative in coming to rescue you, when you were cut off and when you were helpless and when you had no inkling to pursue Him, when you see that and you experience that, you take initiative to care for others. When you truly make the Lord your security, you know, you go through life hopeful about the future. God is with you. He stands beside you. When you truly run to the Lord for your refuge, you really sense that you don't stand a chance without him. And and that kills your pride and produces humility. See, godliness grows out of the Lord being your refuge. Committed love grows out of the Lord 
being your refuge. You can give and you can give and give until it hurts and then give some more. You can lay down your life for others. You can be vulnerable. You can leave your father and your mother and your native land like we see Ruth doing here for the Lord's sake because the Lord is your refuge. You cannot be a godly person if the Lord is not your refuge. You cannot be saved without making the Lord your refuge. We must forsake self-reliance every day and rest our weary souls in the shadow of God's presence through Jesus Christ. Wasn't it Jesus who cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often, where is this image coming from? How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? This is Jesus. And you were not willing, it says. Come to Jesus, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. This is what we see in and through Ruth's life. But what do we observe about Boaz? You know, remember the man with the big flashing arrow above his head. Yeah, yeah, he's a worthy man, verse 1 said. But what does it actually look like? Well, to begin, it's obvious that he walks with the Lord. He carries the Lord's blessing with him to others, even at work. In verse 4, he greets his employees, the Lord be with you. Boaz isn't a man who walks with God on Sunday and forgets God Monday through Friday. Just being around Boaz, you knew that he walked with the Lord. Boaz is also a man who fulfills God's law with love. He fulfills God's law with love. Galatians 5.14 says, The whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we see this in Boaz. He willingly opens his fields for the widow to glean. He's also not the kind of fellow who says, well, I did all that I had to do. Boaz actually goes above and beyond what the law required. He he permits not just a sojourner, but a foreigner to glean, and a Moabite at that. Boaz's compassion, his love, his kindness isn't deterred by social class or ethnicity. Oh, for men like Boaz in our day whose kindness won't show favorites economically or ethnically, but will leap across barriers for the sake of love. Which leads us to something else about Boaz. He is a generous provider. He owes Ruth nothing, but he chooses to give her everything she needs and more. In verse 14, he invites Ruth over to his table. So he's He, as an Israelite, is glad to eat with the outsider and share the best of what's on the table. Come here and and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. He, He passes her the roasted grain. Ruth eats so much she has to take home a doggy bag. In verse 16, Boaz commands his workers to pull out some from the bundles and and leave it for Ruth on purpose. So this, this is a very generous provider. Boaz also becomes Ruth's protector. Look at verse 9. 
Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Again in verse 15. Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Again at the end of verse 16. Do not rebuke her. So Boaz is putting measures in place to protect Ruth from harassment, shame, and insult. And by doing so, who is he exemplifying? Yahweh, who shelters his children beneath his wings. You can even feel Ruth's sigh of relief when she experiences Boaz's provision and protection. Verse 13, she says, I have found favor or grace in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly. Literally, you have spoken on the heart to your servant. His grace-filled generosity and care have become a helpless woman's relief. So in sum, Boaz is this ideal man. This ideal Israelite from Judah who shows extravagant grace to Ruth. You know, when we want to emphasize something in writing, we use bold, uh, italics, underline. Some of you need to stay away from the all caps button, you know, exclamation points. This is how we emphasize things in writing. The way that emphasis happens in Hebrew is by repetition. So if you look in verse 2, we get, In whose sight I shall find favor or grace. And then again in verse 10, Why have I found favor or grace in your eyes? And then verse 13, I have found favor, grace in your eyes. This This is the Holy Spirit shouting us, shouting at us, Consider Boaz's graciousness. Are you making the connections yet? Boaz is an ideal Israelite. He's from the tribe of Judah. He fulfills the law through love. He welcomes outsiders to his table. He provides and protects for his people. He lavishes grace upon them. Should I also add in verse 14 that while he is the Lord of the harvest, he is also a servant? Passing, passing Ruth the bread. There's a real good reason the Holy Spirit painted a big arrow above this man. Boaz is a type of Christ. Now hold that thought and let's rock on to the next scene where Ruth returns to Naomi with the good news of this gracious man. Verse 17, then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So Boaz's graciousness provided more than enough for Ruth in order to also bless Naomi. He provided more than enough for the Gentile in order to also bring blessing 
to the Israelite. Are we in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness is not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, with, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. What just happened? First of all, I want you to notice that the Lord has answered Naomi's prayer. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, she said to Orpah and Ruth, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And what do we find here? May Boaz be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The Lord's kindness, his, his chesed, his committed love has not forsaken the living or the dead. He hasn't forsaken Naomi and Ruth or their dead husbands. How does she know that? What turns on the lights of hope? God has sent to them a gracious Redeemer. The sun of God's kindness and committed love has risen and it begins to shine on Naomi's darkness. It's like she comes alive as Ruth is telling her the news. May he be blessed. This man is a close relative. It's good, my daughter. She begins to see the Lord's committed love at hand and Naomi then becomes quite active throughout the rest of the, of the book, as we'll see. Like Ruth, her hope gives way to initiative. It's like we're meeting a new Naomi. It's funny that she called herself Mara, bitter, but the narrator never calls her Mara. The narrator knows that her future is Naomi, pleasant. Her future is pleasant because God was going to provide her a gracious redeemer. You may even recall that Naomi's faith was imperfect. We felt this tension in the way she kept counseling Orpah and Ruth as if she wasn't really trusting the Lord completely. But here we see that God still answered her prayer. Remember that when you are praying to God with imperfect faith. He does far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think. Don't let your imperfections in the faith keep you from crying out to a God who lavishes grace upon sinners. He did for Naomi far more abundantly than anything she could ask or think. And that becomes clear when the lights go on about Boaz being one of their redeemers, a goel. In the law of Moses, a goel was a close relative who was responsible for the economic well-being of another relative. 
So when a relative got themselves into a pickle, into a crisis, and couldn't get out of it, the Goel, he stepped in to redeem them. Okay? They, they could redeem their property to ensure that their inheritance stays within the clan. They could buy back the relative if the, if the relative happened to sell themselves into slavery. Sometimes that happened to get themselves out of a jam. They'd sell themselves into slavery. He could come in and buy them back out of slavery and, and so forth. But another way that Goel could help the relatives was by marrying the widow of a deceased brother-in-law. This is the, the Leveret marriage mentioned in Deuteronomy 25. Now, some have objected to this connection because Deuteronomy 25 doesn't actually mention the word Goel. And besides, Boaz wasn't Elimelech's brother-in-law, but a more distant relative. That's the point of the story. Boaz doesn't just do the letter of the law. He pursues the spirit of the law. He goes beyond duty to lavish grace and kindness in redeeming Ruth and Naomi. That's coming in chapters 3 and 4. So what are we left with then? At the end of chapter 2, God awakens hope through providing a gracious redeemer. He is a redeemer who is from the tribe of Judah, who fulfills the law through love, who welcomes outsiders to his table, who provides and protects his people, who lavishes grace upon them, and who is a Lord who becomes a servant. Oh, God answers Naomi's prayer. We'll see how he answers that prayer at the end of chapter 4 when Ruth gives birth to a son in David's line. But Naomi never got to see this answer to her prayer come to fruition fully. But we do get to see it because of the incarnation. And we stand on this side of Jesus' coming. Boaz is a type of Christ. A type is a person or an event or an institution in the Old Testament that foreshadows the future realities that are bound up with Christ and his kingdom. Boaz is a figure who is prophetically pointing to Christ and what Christ would be like, but in a far more superior way. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, but he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He conquers and brings God's kingdom on earth like no other man from Judah did or could. He was a mighty lion, but took the form of a lamb, Revelation 5 tells us, so that he would be slain to ransom people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus is also God's son who came to earth as a Jew to fulfill the law for us through love. Everywhere we broke God's law, Jesus obeyed it for us fully, and he did it to be our Redeemer. Here's a good Advent or Christmas text for you to tuck away in your heart. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Galatians chapter 4. Not one that you commonly read in the Advent season. It says in Galatians 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem 
to redeem those who were under the law, so that they so that we might receive adoption as sons. So God sent his son in a unique and purposeful way. The way he was born of woman, I mean that he was born of woman means that he took on our human nature. Human sinners needed a human substitute. And because our sin is an offense against an infinitely holy God, we also need an infinitely worthy sacrifice. Only one who was both God and man could bear our curse and satisfy holy wrath. That he was born under the law means that he had to live under the law in order to redeem us. The law required full obedience and punishment for every infraction. That's bad news for us because we're all lawbreakers. We deserve punishment. But the good news is that Jesus obeyed the law for us and then suffered the punishment we deserve. The righteous died for the unrighteous that we might be brought to God. Boaz was pointing forward to one, to the one and only true law fulfiller and redeemer, Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because Boaz is in the grave. Jesus rose from the dead with his new resurrection body. Boaz was also pointing forward to a Lord who would become a servant. Jesus is Lord of the universe, but he condescended to us. He set aside his right to be seen as glorious, and he took the form of a servant. He served us even to the point of death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Philippians 2 says, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now Jesus is Lord of a far superior harvest, a harvest of souls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that are being gathered as the gospel goes out across the world. In Christ, God's committed love has also brought us protection, protection from sin, death, and the devil. You you are more right than you know, Naomi. He has not forsaken the living or the dead. He will raise our bodies to new life, to be like his glorious body. Death has no power against God's steadfast love in Christ. In Christ, God has won for us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1.3 tells us he is our provider. And remember how Boaz's generosity not only provided for a Gentile like Ruth, but also provided for enough more than enough for Naomi, the Israelite. So also Jesus, Ephesians 2 tells us, reconciles Gentiles into his family by tearing down the dividing wall of hostility. And Romans 11 teaches us that as Israel is looking upon this massive outpouring of blessing upon the Gentiles, that they will be provoked to jealousy and God will graft them back into God's people through the gospel. Why is Israel picking up leftovers after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and 12 baskets full? Because his graciousness is more than enough for Israel. More than enough for you and me. Boaz was pointing to a much greater redeemer, my friends. A redeemer who also welcomes outsiders. Lawbreakers to sit at his table. He eats with tax collectors and sinners No matter what sins you have or where you've been, your greatest sins are no match for his extravagant grace. In Christ, God lavishes his kindness upon us through our gracious Redeemer. He passes us 
the best bread, his own body broken for us, given for us. He invites us to take of the best wine, his blood shed for us. Oh, did God ever answer Naomi's prayer. He has awakened hope in our hearts, too, because of it. This should leave us saying with Ruth, Why, Lord, have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me. It should leave us on our faces, bowing to the ground before a God who shows such graciousness to sinners. His grace in the Redeemer also compels us to run to the Lord and make Christ our refuge. He is our only hope. He is our only safe place from the wrath of God. In Christ, God has provided a safe place for the storms of life. God extends grace to those who run to him for refuge. Do not refuse him. Run to him for yourself. You won't be able to save yourself, but he can run to him for refuge. And finally, since there is so much hope for the world through our gracious Redeemer, let us report the good news to others. It is the good news of a gracious Redeemer that awakens hope in Naomi. It is the good news of a gracious Redeemer that God uses to awaken hope in our neighbors and the nations. May we be faithful to carry that good news to others, to church members who are bitter, to family members who are hurting, to neighbors who sit in darkness, and to the nations who've never heard. But before we run out of here to go report the good news to others, let us first remember what the Lord's grace means for us. Let's come and eat at the table of our gracious Redeemer. He offers his abundance to those who are unworthy.